Good morning, church. Uh, like Steve said, my name is Luke. I get to serve as one of the uh, associate ministers here on staff. It's a great joy to be a part of this church family, a great joy to get to serve along Steve, our senior minister. This is my favorite hour of the week. I love getting to be together with you all. If you would, open your Bibles with me this morning. If you've got the paper Bible or a Bible on your phone to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is where we're gonna be today. How do we measure how much we love God? How do we measure how much we love God? I mean, I guess you could fill out a spreadsheet and chart out how many minutes you prayed this week, or you could mark down how many chapters of the Bible you've read in the last week, or, or we could measure the decibels of your singing voice during the worship service to figure out how loud you sang, or we could think of the last time you were moved to tears by a worship song. We could track how much money you've given in the last year. We could track how many times you've been at church in the last six months. We could track the last time you uh, yelled at somebody. I don't know. How do we measure how much we love God? Well, I think the Bible gives us an answer, and I don't think it's any of those things. So if you've got Luke chapter 10 in front of you, let's look at this tense little interaction that Jesus has with a theologian, and I think it'll give us a clue, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Not a good idea, by the way. Teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's the question still today, isn't it? What do I have to do to make it? Verse 26, Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? In other words, you're the theologian, you tell me. So the guy answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's, that's a good answer. The guy's quoting the Old Testament here, two greatest commandments. Jesus himself actually gave this exact same answer another time. He hits the nail on the head. How do we measure how much we love God? By how much we love the people God made. Uh, we measure our love for God by looking at our love for people. You can't love God without loving people. They come hand in hand. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. John chapter 13, Jesus says another time, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Another time, 1 John chapter 4 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So how do we measure how much we love God? by how much we love the people he's placed around us. Now let's clarify here real quick because we know we're not saved by loving people. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone. And that faith in Jesus results in love for God, which naturally should overflow into love for other people. The church reformer Martin Luther said it like this. He said, faith alone justifies, yet faith is never alone. It's never without love. If love is lacking, neither is there faith but mere hypocrisy. So this theologian answers and says that the way to eternal life is love God, love people. In verse 28, Jesus replies, 
You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. There you have it. Bingo, right answer, buddy. You got it. Now do it. In other words, your answer's great, but your actions could use some improvement. And this whole love thing, it's really easy to know. It's a lot harder to do. And at this point, uh, this lawyer, he should have owned up. He should have been honest. He should have said, yeah, you're right, Jesus. I try to love God perfectly. I try to love people perfectly, but I can't do it. I need help. I need somebody to save me. But he doesn't say that, does he? No, look at verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, okay, cool. I'm good with God. I'm even good with loving the people that I like. But just let's define our terms here. Who exactly do you mean by loving my neighbor? Because if we're talking like by love my neighbor, you mean love my family. Okay, they're a little bit weird, but I can get it. I can do that. And if by love my neighbor, you mean, I guess, love the houses right next to me. Okay, the house on the right is a little bit odd, but I get it. I can put up with that. But if by love my neighbor, you mean love the party house down at the end of the street. Well, that's just too much. And this is the internal conflict that we feel too, right? If I said to you today, love God, love people, all of us would agree with that. Give me a yep. Say yep. Yep. Yeah, love God, love people. Yep. Yep. We all like love in theory. (laughs) But in real life, love gets messy, It's a little harder if I say to you, love God, love your annoying (laughs) mother-in-law. Love God, love your ex by not speaking badly of them in front of your children. Love God, love your boss who's really rude to you by working hard for him anyway. Love God, love your literal neighbor who drives you up a wall with their loud music. Whoa, 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 whoa. We say, okay, okay. Who exactly do I have to love? Where do I get to draw the line? Who's my neighbor? And to answer, Jesus just makes up this story. Take a look, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, when Jesus says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he literally means down. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is 17 miles long, and it drops 4,000 feet in elevation. And along this road, there's lots of curves and cliffs and caves where robbers and bandits could hide out. In fact, robberies and muggings were so common along this road that it was known as the Pass of Blood. And so this traveler, he gets jumped. He gets beaten to a pulp, stripped naked, abandoned in the wilderness. I mean, call in the life flight chopper. This dude's messed up. Then look what happens. Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Call the minister. Maybe he'll help. And when he saw the man, he passed right on by. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Imagine this for a second. Imagine this is you. You've been beaten senseless, knocked unconscious, and when you finally come to, all you feel is this constant throbbing pain. You can't even move, much less speak, but then all of a sudden you hear footsteps coming in the distance, and with the last strength you have, you open your eyes and you see a priest 
Well, this is your lucky day. This is hope. This is a Jewish hero. He's the best of the best. He's going to help you, right? But he just walks right on by. But just then you hear more footsteps and you open your eyes and you look and it's a Levite. He's not quite as good as a priest. He's like the associate pastor, right? They're not all that great, but maybe he can help with something. (laughs) And he too just walks right on by. He can't trust those associate pastors. (laughs) And again, you're left alone in the wilderness to bleed. And all of a sudden you hear a third set of footsteps. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. Uh Uh-oh. Not good. Samaritans are the bad guys. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. That's an oxymoron to the Jews. We're going to get into the whole Jew-Samaritan thing a little bit more next week. But for now, all you need to know is that Jews and Samaritans were like oil and water. So when Jesus is telling this story to the Jews and they hear of a Samaritan coming along, they're thinking, "Uh uh-uh, this ain't going to be pretty. He ain't getting any help from that half-breed. Verse 33, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This is scandalous. This is shocking. This is like if I told you a story about a wounded U.S. Marine lying alone on a desert road in Afghanistan, and all of a sudden, along in his Humvee comes a general, and he sees the wounded Marine lying there. He remembers no man left behind, but he drives right on by. And then along comes a medic in a Jeep, and he too sees the wounded Marine lying there, but he goes as far to the other side of the road as he possibly can and drives right on by, pretending like he doesn't even see it. And just then comes a member of al-Qaeda, a terrorist walking along. What do you expect? And he comes to where the Marine is. He bends down. He does first aid. He throws the guy on his shoulders. He takes him back to base. He gets him healed. Whoa. I didn't see that coming. That's how the Jews would have heard this story that Jesus was telling. It's important as we read the Bible to understand how the original audience would have understood the text. It's also important as we read scripture to ask two key questions. First, what does this text tell me about people? And secondly, what does this text tell me about God? So let's start with the first question. What does this text tell me about people? What does this text tell me about me? Who am I in this story? Well, maybe I'm the priest and the Levite. The text says that this priest was going down the road. So we can assume he's going downhill from Jerusalem to Jericho. Lots of priests lived in Jericho. So this priest is probably heading back from Jerusalem where he'd just gotten done serving at the temple. He's coming from church. So we can imagine him riding his donkey down a steep road, coming across a body lying on the shoulder, covered in blood. Now this priest is coming from the temple. He's coming from church. He's coming from offering sacrifices of worship to God. So why doesn't he get down off his donkey and into the ditch? 
You see, this, this priest would have known God's law. He knew what he was supposed to do. He knew that in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34, God says to help those in need, even the foreigners, even the strangers in the land. This priest knew Exodus chapter 23, that God says, if you come across your enemy's donkey in a ditch, not even a human being, a donkey in a ditch, you're supposed to help him. You're even supposed to help your enemy. This, this priest, he would have known the words of the prophet Hosea that God desires mercy more than sacrifice, more than the sacrifices he just got done offering at the temple. He would have memorized the words of the prophet Micah. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy. He had these verses highlighted in his Bible. So why didn't he get down off his donkey and into the ditch? Well, before we get all self-righteous and start pointing our fingers, let's look at ourselves first. Because I've been that priest before. I've been that Levite. I'm probably not the only person in the room who's literally driven by somebody on the side of the road and looked the other way. So why don't we love our neighbors as ourselves? I think this text gives us three quick reasons why we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. First, I think we're busy. We're busy. Maybe the priest and the Levite weren't bad guys. Maybe they were just busy guys. Uh, there was a study done at Princeton University back in the 70s uh, among a group of theology students. And they were told as part of this research, they didn't know they were part of a research experiment, but they were told to go across campus and preach a sermon on the Good Samaritan. And as part of the research, some of the students were told that they were running late and that they needed to hurry. And along their path across campus, there was an actor who'd been hired to play the part of a suffering victim. He was coughing and stuff. 90% of those theology students on their way across campus to preach about the Good Samaritan walked right on by that victim without doing anything. In fact, several of them even literally stepped over the body of the victim on the way to go preach about the love of God that helps needy people. <laughs> they were busy. Now, like you guys, my life is hectic. Right? My, my calendar's pretty full. I'm busy. Most of us are busy. We could probably all say that. I'm in a hurry more often than I'd like to admit. The hardest thing to give sometimes is time. Maybe we don't love our neighbors like we should because we just don't have margin in our lives. Maybe we're just busy. Maybe that's why we sometimes lack love. So, so why don't we love our neighbors as ourselves? Well, number one, we're busy. And number two, love is costly. Love is costly. It's easy to talk about love in church. It's easy to love you guys. It, it, it's easy to love people who are gonna love us back. But it gets harder when the rubber meets the road and loving somebody means interrupting our schedule or emptying our wallet or opening our home or making another meal. Love costs this Samaritan a lot. Cost him a couple days wages to pay the innkeeper. Cost him uh, some oil and some wine. Cost him uh, some good miles on his donkey. Cost him at least one night in a motel. <laughs> and when you choose to love your neighbor, it'll be costly. Might mean your house is a mess and your couch gets stained and your savings account is a little thinner and your phone rings in the middle of the night and you come to the end of the day and you're a lot more tired and you spend less time on your hobbies and more time with messy people. Love is nice in theory, 
But when love gets specific, when love means loving your neighbor, it gets messy. It gets costly. So why don't we love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, we're busy. Love is costly. And I think we just think that somebody else will do it. Somebody else will do it. Now, there's a technical term for this, actually. It's called the bystander effect. And psychologists have found that if a person witnesses a crisis event, they are less likely to jump in and help if there are other witnesses present. Because we think somebody else will do it. I'm a priest, not a paramedic. It's not my job. Somebody else will come along. In fact, if you Google the bystander effect, you'll find lots of examples of this, from a murder in New York City to a two-year-old girl run over by a car in China to a man drowning in California. There were lots of witnesses present at each one of those, and yet no one stepped in to help until it was too late. Why? Because somebody else will do it. The mission of our church is not to get you guys in this building one hour a week. Now, believe me, I love that we're here. This is my favorite hour of the week, it is. But that's not our mission. Our mission is actually to send you out to be fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ every other hour of your week outside of this building. And we as a church wanna do that to the absolute best of our ability. But we also need your help. We need your help to know how to best equip you, how to best equip us to follow Jesus in our everyday lives. And the best way you can do that right now to help us is by filling out this survey. I know it's easy to look at an announcement like that and think, ah, somebody else is gonna do it. It's 20 minutes. It's hard to mess with technology. I get it. I'm technologically illiterate, okay? But there's no excuses here. We have a whole team of people out in the hub with green t-shirts on who would love to help you figure this out. You can schedule a time slot to come in anytime this week and literally take it with them if you want. They can help you through it step by step. We need you to do this. We would be so grateful if you would do this for us, if you'd take this survey so that we can know how to better equip you all to live out your lives as Jesus followers outside of this building because that's what following Jesus is all about. Can I give you another gentle reminder? If you're not serving yet, if you're not giving yet, if you're not having spiritual conversations with the people in your circle yet, if you're not meeting the needs of the needy people who come in your path yet, then you're missing a beautiful opportunity that Jesus has prepared you for and that he's uniquely equipped you to meet. You know who the best person is to reach the people around you? It's you. God put you there for a reason. Even if you're busy, even if it's costly, God is asking you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So we all know we're supposed to love, right? We get it. I'm supposed to love. But how do we love? How do we love our neighbor? Well, let's look at this story from the perspective of the good Samaritan. Maybe that's who we're supposed to be. And when the Samaritan comes across this beat up guy on the side of the road, he pulls over, he bandages his wounds, he pours on oil and wine, he takes him to an inn. Now, the Samaritan probably wasn't carrying around a first aid kit, all right? So he probably has to rip his own clothes to make these bandages. He's literally giving the shirt off of his back. Throws him on his donkey, takes him to the nearest town. Now, that's a gutsy thing for a Samaritan to do. This is a Samaritan going to a Jewish town in a Jewish motel with a half-dead Jew draped over his donkey. That doesn't look too good for the Samaritan, all right? This love is extravagant. He pays two days' wages to take care of this guy at the motel for who knows how long, not knowing if this guy's ever gonna be able to pay him back. This guy, he doesn't even know. This is radical love. 
Jesus closes this story by asking in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, and my guess is through gritted teeth, the one who had mercy on him. You remember the question that got this whole story started, right, was who is my neighbor? Well, (laughs) Jesus doesn't really answer that question. Jesus is less interested in telling us who our neighbor is and he's more interested in telling us how to be a neighbor. Jesus is less interested in telling us who we have to love and he's more interested in telling us who we're called to be. Because here's the bottom line. This good Samaritan kind of love is radical, it's costly, it's lavish, it's difficult. But each of you are this generous. You are. Each of you has somebody in your life that you will go to great lengths to love and to care for. Each of you has somebody in your life that you will do whatever it takes to meet their needs, even if it's costly, even if it's inconvenient, night or day. When they need care, you're gonna take them to the best doctor. When they keep having the same old struggles day in and day out, you don't give up on them. You give them grace before they even ask for it. You each have a person like that in your life. And it's you. It's yourself. If I'm in trouble, I don't stop to wonder if I'm worth helping I just do it. We all love and care for ourselves. We meet our own needs. And that's great. That's fine. It's good. We're also supposed to do that exact same thing for other people, though. That's how we're called to love others. As ourselves. That's the test. What what if I were them? Would I do that for me? Okay, then I should do it to them. When you see somebody in need, you are called to imagine yourself in their shoes. What would you want? What would you need if you were them? Okay, then do it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the woman whose husband just left her for somebody younger and prettier. Love the high school girl whose virginity was just stolen by her high school sweetheart. Love that kid who keeps coming up to you and nagging you after you've had a long day at work and you're dead tired and the kid just wants to play. Love him by playing with him. Love that spouse who's had a hard day and just needs you to sit down and be quiet and listen. Love the man whose job was just lost and he feels like a failure. Love that difficult child who keeps on disobeying. Love the elderly person who wonders what their purpose is in life now. Love the widow who feels all alone. Love that annoying daughter-in-law who sometimes drives you nuts. Love the annoying kid who sits next to you in class. Love the coworker that everybody else is gossiping about. Love your neighbor as yourself. First John chapter four. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. We measure how much we love God by how much we love those he's placed around us. Love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, if the point of this story is just to tell me to be like the good Samaritan and love others as I love myself, The sad fact of the matter is that I can't. If that lawyer asked Jesus what he had to do to get eternal life and Jesus said he had to love God perfectly and love his neighbor completely, then I can't. I can't do it. 
I try, but I fail, which means I'm stuck. I'm hopeless. I can't justify myself. I can't earn eternal life. I can't love God or my neighbor perfectly because I'm selfish and I'm sinful, which means I have rebelled against the king of heaven and I am worthy of nothing but the eternal wrath of God. I am wounded by the brokenness of my own sin. I am unable to fix myself. I am beaten and bloodied by my own choices. I am left on the side of the road, half dead, totally unable to help myself to safety, totally incapable of healing on my own. That's who I am in this story. I'm not the priest, I'm not the Levite, I'm certainly not the good Samaritan. I'm the bleeding man. I'm that body, lying in a pool of blood, desperate for someone to save me. That's what this story tells me about me. But what does this story tell us about God? Well, God could have walked right on by. He didn't have to stop and help me. I rebelled against him. I was his enemy. God could have set up some limits on who was his neighbor. He could have drawn some lines on how far his love would go. But the amazing thing is that Jesus chose to cross over to my side of the road to cross the vast chasm of eternity and come from heaven to earth and get down in the ditch to help me at great cost to himself. He bandaged my wounds, being stripped naked so that I could be clothed in his righteousness. When he carried that cross up that hill, he was carrying me home. He paid my debt. He covered everything that I owed, knowing that I would never be able to pay him back. And it is pure grace that Jesus Christ was a neighbor to me. And that he laid his own interests aside. And he loved us as he loved himself. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So let me give you two challenges today. First, if you've not yet let Jesus rescue you, don't put it off. We are all broken He's the only one who can fix you. He's the only one who can heal you. He's the only one who can bring you home. He's the only one who can rescue you. He's the only one who can save you. You're bleeding and you know it, so don't put it off another day. Come talk to me. Talk to somebody in a green t-shirt. Come up at the end of this. Email us. Do whatever it takes, but don't put it off. Let Jesus rescue you. And secondly, if you are a follower of Jesus, then look at how Jesus ends this conversation. Verse 37, Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Show that you love God by loving the people that God has placed around you. Love your neighbor as yourself. The title of this sermon is Jesus Will Transform You. So specifically, I wanna challenge you to pray one simple prayer to let Jesus transform the way you look at the world and the way you love people. Each day, commit to praying this simple prayer. God, Send me one person I can love for you today. It's easy, it's simple, and it's powerful. I've been praying this prayer daily as I prepared for this sermon, and I can tell you, God will answer it. He will send you those people. He will transform the way you see your day. You'll be looking for those opportunities to love people on his behalf. One day, that person was my wife. One day, that person was a friend I have that was just in need of some extra encouragement. One day, that person was another friend on his birthday. One day, that person was the cashier at the gas station who looked a little discouraged. 
One day that person was the lady from Apple support that I was on the phone with for 40 minutes. <laughs> Let's be a church that reflects how much we love God by how much we love people. Let's be a church that loves our neighbor as we love ourselves. Let's be a church that prays this simple prayer. God, send me one person I can love for you today. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and we thank you for sending your one and only to love us while we were broken and dead and lost. You healed us, you fixed us, you saved us, you rescued us, you brought us home, you paid our debt, and we praise you for that. Now send us, Jesus, to love others that same way. We need you every day. In your name we pray, amen.